Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And this is No Limits, a Mitch Rap podcast. So how you doing today, Mike? Oh, I'm good. I got my little Yoda bobblehead with me. Well, actually, baby Yoda, the child, Ooh. just came in the mail. I think it was part of May the 4th. Star Wars wanted to make sure to get these things out, you know. I, th- uh, I think, if I recall, I got the package on May the 4th. It was pre-ordered for a while. Nice. Yeah, we celebrated May the 4th. My son is very into Star Wars, and so we celebrated it by watching, although not a great movie, but we he wanted to watch The Rise of Skywalker. So he okay. was watched it like 15 times already. He's only three. <laughs> He's probably watched that more than most Star Wars fans, to be honest with you, oh. who probably watched it once and said never again. Definitely. Uh, that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, uh, for our Twitter roundup, got some responses to our hashtag rap origin stories shout out to a couple of big readers i'm learning a lot by following you guys online we have at Stuart jash s-t-u-a-r-t-j-a-s-h man this guy is awesome he's been tweeting at us telling us how much uh, he's reading and his origin story was similar to vince flynn he had a difficult time reading you know through his earlier years a little hesitant to become a reader And we know, as we talked about in the Arjun episode, Vince Flynn suffered from dyslexia in his case and uh, wasn't a big reader, but eventually knew he wanted to become a writer. Well, Stuart Jash in 2012 picked up Transfer of Power. That's the next one we will be reading and reviewing on this podcast. He even back in 2012 screenshotted a picture of the warning page right in the beginning in Transfer of Power, how they warn the Secret Service uh, protocols and White House security details have been changed. Vince Flynn omitted a lot of those details to respect the privacy of the protection details. And Stuart Jash, uh, he tweeted that years ago when he first got into these books. He says since he's been reading 200 books a year, which, wow. yeah, again, is just there's a serious community of readers out there that I, I want to learn from. I've been learning a lot already in just a few weeks of Twitter lucky if i get like i don't know 30 40 bucks a year i think my goodreads goal is hovering usually yeah right where you said around 30 books a year and uh i think i hit it most years one other origin story we got online shout out to follower at evil rap lady love the handle love the nickname love that name love that name. she has a similar origin story i've been hearing a lot about online who found out about the movie premise picked up on American Assassin and has been hooked ever since. And I guess, thankfully for a lot of people, that's a way to find Mitch Rapp and uh, get into the series. Yeah. Any way you can come, we're, we're happy that you uh, came to the series. Yeah. So it's a whole world out there. I'm looking forward to meeting more people and really getting the Twitter game going. Nice. So uh, what are we going to be covering today, Mike? Today we are wrapping up term limits. It is part three. We are going to get through in just the first few minutes the ending of the book how it wraps up we'll call that our wrap up and final thoughts on see what i did there (laughs) (laughs) i like that and then then we'll spend some time on the zero-sum game sharing our winners and losers from vince flynn's first novel nice so we started off chapter 30 with kennedy really deducing that the assassins from the first murders, she believes that he let himself be seen on purpose as, as a black man in order to get them off their scent. And so now she believes that he's not black and that they need to sort of retool who they're looking at 
and who they need to be pursuing further. I thought that was an interesting. That's our girl Kennedy. She's always she's always always has the right answer. Shame yeah, there. I was just going to say the investigation was in danger of going down a rabbit hole that the assassins wanted to send them on by only looking at uh, former uh, special ops and SEALs and Army Rangers who were African American. And for Kennedy, she quickly realizes, why would they let us know that information? Right. I thought it was and interesting it, how there yeah. was only two black Navy SEALs, which is uh, – there was much more in the other um, different branches. And so obviously – I don't know if that was on purpose because uh, Scott Coleman is a Navy SEAL. Our assassins are Navy SEALs. So. Well, I think, I think that's what Kennedy is picking up on. She's picking up on if they didn't want you to – if they were SEALs, they would pick a profile and a demographic that wouldn't necessarily point you to the seals. And it so once again shows Vince right. Flynn's knowledge of in the inner circle, knowing that the, the data would be less for black seals. And so the investigation would quickly then look at army rangers and other special operations right. uh, outside of the seals. And so Kennedy is saying something doesn't rub me right. If the only mistake these guys made was being seen in a park by some bystanders, why would they do that? And she requests the file of these 19 seals that she does want to investigate further. Right. And then we quickly turn back to Seamus and Coleman and O'Rourke. They're informed about Arthur and they run, they learn that Arthur used to run dark ops uh, and that they know of some seals who have worked for Higgins, but they want to make sure that it's Higgins who have performed these newest murders of Turnquist and Olson before they take him out, which is, you know, they want to, they want to sort of dot their eyes, cross their T's. And so, they go on this recon trip to uh, Arthur's house, and it's there that they see uh, Mike Nance show up. And it's, I thought it was interesting, and one of the elements, the themes that we're gonna talk about later is this idea of hubris is gonna be a theme we're gonna talk about later, and this idea of hubris and characters that have hubris and how that gets them in trouble. He's in the state-of-the-art facility, you know, it's super secure, but because of his addiction to, to smoking, allows him to go outside, and that's what allows them to see him and to see him meeting with Nance, and so that, he thinks that he's, you know, untouchable. Yeah, the, the recon mission itself is set up pretty cool because Arthur has a very advanced technology and security system surrounding a rural mansion in Maryland, but it's on the bay, on the Chesapeake Bay, and so Scott links up with a couple of buddy SEALs who turn out to be the ones on his assassin team. And so now we meet all the assassins and they bring Michael O'Rourke into the fold. They let him come on this recon mission with them. And so the four of them use a boat, scuba gear, and they wade into the rocks. One of them sets up in a tree that's hidden at a view of the guards. Another one is waiting down uh, by the rocks at the base near the water. And they are able to observe, like you said, what the heck is the national security advisor and chief of staff doing in the middle of the night, smoking a cigar with this guy who has a history of being pushed out of the CIA for going too far. I mean, when you say pushed out of the CIA from going too far, that's exactly what our heroes, Mitch Rapp and others are going to do. And we love them for, and we need them to do. And so if this guy is really that bad running these operations, what the heck are these White House top aides doing with him smoking a cigar? Right. And so they decide instead of killing Arthur, which might've been their plan of attack so that he can't do these operations, they decide to kidnap him. 
That way they can get a little more information on what he's doing and what his relationship is to the White House. Right. And so at the same time that this is going on, we have Kennedy who's making this revelation about the Operation Snatch, Snatchback in Libya that was leaked information and it led to deaths of, of Coleman's team. And so we learn like through various people and, and storytelling that Fitzgerald at a bar was talking to a bartender and this bartender thought they were talking to a reporter, which actually turns out to be a KGB agent. And that's how this information got out that led to the Coleman's men getting killed. It's the, this third, um, theme that I'm going to bring up later, this idea of consequences that every action in the political game has consequences. And, you know, Fitzgerald by blabbing, you know, just saying this random information doesn't think about the consequences that he could have by just having this single conversation. How does this all get down to O'Rourke? Is that Senator Olson also knew about the mission and Senator Olson caught wind that Fitzgerald was the one who leaked it in a bar. And so now that Olson trust O'Rourke, O'Rourke feels he has a duty. If he knows why his friend Scott lost SEALs on that mission, O'Rourke says, I've got to let Scott know. It's my duty and my responsibility to explain to him who caused you to lose men on your mission and who caused your mission to be compromised. Guess who picks up on that at the very end of the book? Kennedy. She asks Michael O'Rourke at the very end. She says, did Senator Olson know about the leak? O'Rourke says, yeah. And Kennedy asks, did you inform Scott Coleman? Once again, Kennedy was just on it. And so she's, she's already, I can't believe in the first book by Vince Flynn, she is set up to be the mastermind who is able to run Mitch Rapp. Like I can't read this book and think of one other person here who I would say is comfortable running rap in the field. It's, it's a great introduction to Kennedy. And I think it's also a great introduction to Coleman. I forget which book is, is it next book or whatever book he's introduced with Mitch Rapp. There is some clarification there. Well, I guess we'll get to it, but there is a clarification scene where Coleman is introduced with, with Kennedy and they sort of talk about the events of, of this book. I guess we can say that for when, when we get to that, sure. that part, but I mean, they're going to have to explain why Coleman didn't go to Rapp as his partner for these assassinations. You know, of course right. we don't have Rapp yet, but I'm saying some retconning. I wonder if we'll have to be, looking for the clues and the breadcrumbs if we get any information about where rap would have been during the time of term limits later right. on. I'm trying to think like he's definitely, cause he's recruited like two years like 20, after yeah. college. Right. Or like, yeah. And he's around Coleman's age. Yeah. So definitely he's around and he's in the CIA at this time. And, and Coleman's already served in the seals as we've heard countless missions. Right. So, and when we meet Coleman in, in, the rap series, he's already set up his whole, I forget what the name of his company is, but it's like uh, yep. oh, um, Navy SEALs. Something with demolition. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, but yeah, yeah it'll be. They set up this, uh, this partner company where they're, you know, taking contracts to do side work. And why would Mitch Rapp not be on that team in that company with Coleman? Right. Grant that he's not even a thought in Vince Flynn's mind right now, but that's been bugging me this entire book. Like, where is Mitch Rapp? Like, why isn't he in this book? Why did he decide to, he has so many players that are in the Mitch Rapp universe, but not Mitch Rapp. It's just like, what did, did he not come up with it yet? Or, you know, had he already had the idea? 
I think as we do these reviews, we're going to, we're going to pick up on some crumbs. I bet he later leaves us some crumbs where we could put the pieces together on that, but we'll have to, we'll have to pay attention to it. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. So what we learn is that Arthur Higgins was captured and he's interrogated by Coleman and O'Rourke and they get a videotaped confession of him saying that he was working with the White House, particularly Nance and Garrett, and they were the ones for the most recent two assassinations. We basically have O'Rourke able to turn that information over to the FBI without implicating himself. He says that it was left on his doorstep by the assassin and they chose him because he didn't even know it, but they trust him. So they thought they can give him the information that could be passed on to take down Arthur Higgins and thereby the White House. Now, here's the thing. When they were done with Higgins and got the confession, I never considered they kill him in a real interesting way. They use a syringe and I've always seen doctors put the syringe vertically in the air and squeeze a little, little bit of the yeah. uh, liquid out that way you and don't that's get to get the air bubbles out. I never considered what would happen if you do a syringe of just air oh, well. into someone's veins. Deadly. <laughs> I learned that it was deadly as we watch Arthur Higgins, um, you know, very painfully die in this scene. Maybe it's what, what he had coming, but um, I thought you as a scientist could explain that to me. Yeah. It's to that, 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 that you don't like introduce air pockets into your, into your blood. Gotcha. So you want to avoid that at all costs. I don't know the actual specifics if like a little bit of air got in, but I guess definitely a full vial of, you know, full of needle or full syringe full of air would do the deed. Yep. So we have a couple of scenes here, which are exciting in the situation room. Yes. And I think this is where we, if you weren't on team O'Rourke yet, you better be now because he is willing to call Garrett out on everything. So far we've had a couple of players not willing to go so far as to say Garrett is the problem and to say it in front of the president. Right. And now we get O'Rourke, now that we have these tapes and these confessions, anything Garrett's going to do to weasel out of it, O'Rourke's going to call him out on the spot. Yeah, so the, they dump the body specifically on Garrett's lawn, and they they really want to see Garrett and Nance sweat. And there's a, there's a point in the book where Stansfield picks up on Garrett's nervousness, and he uses his you know, CIA spy tradecraft, always observing, you know, and Nance is, is depicted multiple times as being very similar to, you know, your typical spy. He, he likes to be quiet. He stands on the side of the room. And I imagine, you know, knowing who Thomas Stansfield is, we get introduced to him. I think he's in like five of the books in the Mitch Rapp series. He would, you know, be able to, to pick up on these traits very easily. And I thought that that was interesting. Yeah. Nance even tries to, literally slap Garrett out of his face and says, you fool in that meeting, you were looking at me the whole time you were sweating. Was it a mistake to let someone like Garrett in on the secret or partner with him when all of these tells would point to his, would implicate him in the situation. And so, yep. Stansfield is onto them. Right. I feel like that was a bad call. You, you shouldn't have trust Garrett. Right. You jump ahead though. And Nance is ready to, he's almost, you see the breakdown of Nance, you know, he's the national security advisor. He is also, um, I forget if he was military background, but he was also very, he was in the NSA, very well trained on these sorts of issues yet. He kind of loses it 
you see a big transition in like the character of Nance going from kind of in the background shadows and then he's like freaking loses it in this last, you know, probably five chapters or whatever. What's cool is when O'Rourke is taken, you see the CIA war room go into action. It describes Stansfield communicating with the floor operator back at the CIA who's getting uh, satellites, uh, prepping teams and doing a mission debrief on Nance's ranch. And so they're, they're observing the Nance ranch, expecting that that's where O'Rourke was taken. Right. And so we get this whole scene where O'Rourke has been taken to the Nance ranch and they, he knows that O'Rourke knows that Nance is going to use some sort of drug on him. So he tries to stall. Seamus hears that it might've been Nance who got him and alerts Coleman and Coleman is just ready to go, to go off. He wants to get in the game, but he's being tailed. The FBI is pretty much on him. And so Coleman has to do a number of aversion tactics to get his FBI tail off of him. So Coleman ends up getting to the Naval Academy where he's in Annapolis. They drive out of DC and Coleman knows this is where I can disappear. He talks to the guards, he gets inside and the Naval Academy guards actually stop the FBI agents telling him and they're going to wait for clearance to let the agents into this area. I thought that was really cool. That that was was cool. And meanwhile, Coleman is like the big shot on campus going down to see his buddy at the docks um, his, his buddy has arranged, uh, a ride for him, a boat that he's going to let him take out for a few hours. And his buddy's going to say, I don't know. I haven't seen this guy. And it's totally this network and relationships he's built up through the military. You know, he's cashing in on that now, his reputation. And so he uses this cover in order to escape from the FBI. And I liked how he's able to you know, through a series of phone calls, he forces, he wants to talk to Stansfield. Stansfield's with Nance. And I really like the, what, what do you think about the whole, the Nance's death? Yeah, I think they, I think Stansfield planned a great operation in the CIA, getting into the house. We get a pretty heightened uh, scene, really intense, of O'Rourke is getting tortured and they are about to use this truth serum on him, which it was very clear in the text could cause permanent lasting brain damage. And it's at that moment that O'Rourke is taking the beating, beating. He's holding out. He realizes that by antagonizing his captors, he can keep them going and buy himself some time. So O'Rourke is just being brave, spitting back and really holding up to the interrogation. At which point CIA, they break in, they execute their mission perfectly. In comes Stansfield to rescue Michael and they capture Nance as well. And so now the question is, what are you going to do with the national security advisor who you have evidence was involved in two assassinations of government officials and now also the third, a kidnapping of a third congressman. And so Stansfield, right as he's having to make this decision, gets a call. And it's our friend Coleman. And Coleman wants to meet with both of them. He says, I don't want anybody telling you. I want you on a chopper with Nance and O'Rourke. And he gives them coordinates to meet out on a peninsula in the Chesapeake Bay. I did look that one up as well. It was pretty well detailed. It was about, you know, an hour south, an hour east of DC out south of Annapolis. And Coleman takes this boat off the coast of this peninsula, finds a small island, Stansfield lands with a helicopter. Yeah, and we, we get a 
after a brief interaction, uh, Stansfield sort of suggests, you know, it'd be better not to not to shoot him, but instead to kill him the same way that you killed Fitzgerald, or like the the assassins killed Fitzgerald. And it's interesting how then they use this to explain away his death by being thrown off a horse. And this, these last like five chapters really show the strength of Thomas Stansfield and the CIA. I like how this book sort of takes us through, we, we go through the assassins, we go through the, like the parts of the FBI and then at the very end we're shown like this op, I mean, yes, the, the CIA is operating on domestic soil, but it's a very cool experience with the Stansfield and, and the power of the CIA and, and that aspect. I like that. They even have these references to how many people they're going to have to tail. And Irene Kennedy is like, we have the resources. And Director Roach, the FBI, keeps wondering, how are you able to tail 40 different people and keep tabs on it? And Kennedy, again, two or three times says, we can do it. We have the the resources. And this is 1997. So really before drones, really before high resolution satellite imagery, I'm sure there's some. But Kennedy is saying, we've got the means. She doesn't say the personnel. She says, we've got the means. So who knows what kind of tactics she's relying on. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it, but where do we learn that the CIA put out the story that Nance was thrown from a horse and killed? That's the cover story. Um, It's Liz and Mike are out of the airport, right? Yeah, they're flying out of Reagan National. And I feel like I'm always telling these stories. It's a pretty efficient airport. It's great. It's it's connected to the metro. It's it's actually right outside DC on the Potomac River. It's pretty easy to get in and out. And and they're mentioning this one gate that a lot of congressmen use when they're going flying home to their districts, gate right. 35X. Gate 35X is a rip, man. And by the way, Reagan's building a new terminal to replace 35X, but you basically go down an escalator, you get on a shuttle bus and it goes out onto the tarmac and you load from the tarmac. And you can have anybody on your flight with you because they're shuttles. They're, they go out pretty much every hour to a bunch of major cities on the eastern seaboard. Okay. And one day I was flying out of there. I was in 35X. You know what I see the next morning on the paper? What? A photograph. It's the same time I was boarding of Robert Mueller and Donald Trump Jr., standing next to each other awkwardly in line oh, that's and awkward. i was, I was that's literally awkward. i was just off the frame of the photo boarding a separate flight and it was the height of the Mueller investigation oh, wait, you were you were like right there well i saw i didn't notice them or anything it was the next day i saw the picture and the picture was dated at about the exact time where i was also flying Wow. And, and so Reagan Airport is, if you just buy a ticket and pretend you're flying and you can just sit there and people watch. I mean, another day we were going to Burlington and Rosie, my wife, she looks up and she goes, she taps me and she goes, look, sitting right across in the lobby with big headphones on is a really tall guy, bald with white hair. It's Bernie Sanders. <laughs> That's funny. And we see three people walk up and shake his hand and say, thank you. Thank you for your service. And I'm like, what? Oh, 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 Bernie Sanders. Another day, someone's taking selfies behind me in line. I turn around. It's Stacey Abrams, the Democratic uh, candidate who lost for the race for governor. And she also gave the uh, Democratic response to one of the early Trump State of the Unions. And so she was behind me taking selfies in a line. I was flying to Atlanta. So it's crazy crazy people that you see coming out of uh, Reagan and D.C. Yeah. Well, that's the book, and um, they see that Nance has 
died and the story is he fell off his horse, at which point Liz taps Michael and says, how did they fake? And Michael says, we don't know anything. And they board their flight and enjoy their time together as a couple. Yeah. Thank you, Vince. Thank you, Vince. And so now we're going to do our wrap up of the book Term Limits. And so what do you think of this book, Mike? It was, it was pretty long, six, over 600 pages, kind of long for a, for a thriller. Yeah, I felt that as I was reading it too. You know, looking back, there were these parts I was just slogging through, trying to get through, trying to keep up the network of characters because we had a lot of backstory for a lot of different people. So it wasn't, wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but I did feel the length. I did feel that this was lengthier than what I read in the genre quite a bit and a lot of later Vince Flynn and Kyle Mills books. You know, this one felt felt like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I felt... I guess the reason maybe it was so long is because of, like you said, the, char- the amount of characters that we are introduced to in this book and the backstory that we get on every single character. And I feel that going forward, we don't really, in the in Vincent's books, we don't really get that much depth into this many characters. You know, we're gonna we're gonna get introduced to characters along the way, but not necessarily twenty different characters and learn about each of them. In, in the amount of detail that, that Vince does. So I agree. Yeah. It was like this was a, a testing ground or proving ground, kind of like I think we talked about earlier, you know, imagine this canvas. It's kind of like the Jackson Pollock of throwing different characters and their stories at the wall, seeing what sticks. And what's kind of cool about that is I, I started Transfer of Power, the next book we're, we're going to get into. And right off the bat in chapter one, you immediately know who stuck, who made it on that final canvas and yeah. who's sticking around. As we know, it's going to be Dr. Irene Kennedy and Thomas Stansfield of the CIA. You meet them right off the bat and transfer power. So I feel like they were the winners. We see a lot of characters later. Don't get me wrong. But I, I just thought it was interesting how transfer of power really made me think, yep, these are the two he decided to keep running with. Well, and you can almost see that in the end of this book, right? Like the last, I don't know, five or six chapters, like I said earlier, are really where Thomas Stansfield sort of shines and Irene Kennedy. I mean, she was shining the whole book, but the last four or five chapters are all about the CIA, you know, the beginnings of the of what Vince Flynn is going to talk about with the CIA and that kind of stuff. And so you could see that maybe that's where he was he was enjoying writing that. And so that that's what continued him on to keeping those characters and, and building more upon them. Interesting That's right. to note, like, why why wouldn't he have chose to stick with the character of Michael O'Rourke? Like, he's a pretty interesting character. He's this congressman. He doesn't necessarily want to stay. You know, th- he could have chose that guy to, to write a, a series off of. I think that would have been a great idea if his writing was going to take more of a, an approach to politics and standing up for your values in a more political way or diplomatic way. I think he definitely was what we loved in that end. But I feel like his shortcomings for where Vince wanted to go with a super agent, a super CIA trained assassin. I don't know if the background we were given on Michael would have fit that. I believe there was some injury in the Marines. He was he was pretty good at, at doing special operations type work and his training with the Marines. But it didn't seem to be that caliber of a character that was going to play that role of super agent that really proves to us he's got the goods and he's going to be best in the world. Michael kind of also was a little too, his backstory on that was a little too tame 
right. he was developed more so as this persona of in the public eye, which he didn't like, but that's where he was pigeonholed in term limits, which holds him back from taking on that role that Mitch Rapp will assume. Right. And so I just wanted to discuss to you like some of the themes that I thought really stood out in, in this book that I think the Vince was trying to convey. And the first one throughout the whole book was pretty prevalent is this idea of good versus evil. And there's a fine line between good versus evil. And I think that there are characters that tend to go back and forth. You can argue with me what, you know, are the assassins good or are they evil? In the end, I feel like their actions were justified, but in some, in some instances, but yeah. What do you think about the idea of good versus evil in that line? I think it was definitely played around with in the book. I think there were a lot of moral questions being asked. I, I guess I would say I was a little disappointed in how far they were taken. Some of the discussions around, was it appropriate for a trained assassin to turn on his own government? Well, obviously, you know, if you believe in the constitution, yes. But I just thought it could have been played out more of the nitty gritty of, does that mean assassinations could ever be justified? I, and I feel like it was left with this, yeah, kind of, sort of, without yeah. truly really diving into the consequences of that. If you if you accept that policy, which it kind of assumed the readers are going to be okay with. I mean, Stansfield, you know, CIA director turns his head when someone who assassinated the Speaker of the House, third in line <laughs> for, the, for the presidency, he actually is the one who suggests, why don't hey, you assassinate in front of me the National Security Advisor, Mike Nance? And I'm, I'm sure those kinds of extremes could happen, but the text didn't play with, should they be happening this way? And what will be the fallout? I thought it could have explored more that territory. Yeah. Do you think like these types of books tend to go that deep? It'd be interesting to, you know, when I first read these things, I'm just in it for like the action and but rereading upon rereading them, I start to think about, you know, what are, what is the author really trying to say? Does he have, other motives about, you know, something that's happening in the real world? Does he have something to say about a theme, about something he really wants to drive home? So yeah, it'll be interesting going forward if we can pick those things out. I think you're right. And I think the genre doesn't have to go that deep into each one of them. But I think it is what sets apart, let's say an author writes 15 novels over their career. I think that's what's going to set apart the two or three that win big. They're all going to have amazing, amazing action scenes, amazing location data, amazing specificity on the tactics and the equipment being used. Like right. that stuff is going to blow me away in every book. I think the two or three that are going to last for each author are the ones that do handle those themes. Yeah. That really I mean, like develop a character well that has this complexity of who he is. And yep. Like you I'll said, put it this way. Jack Carr, who's blowing up right now with his awesome series. It's really blown up. He was on the Joe Rogan show and he talked about his writing process. He learned from one of his mentors and he, he puts a post-it on his desk visible at every moment of the writing process. And that post-it note has a one word theme and he wants everything he writes to relate to and be connected to and make sense around that theme. And so for his most recent book, it was revenge. And I'm thinking, I think that's what's going to make a book stand out is if that theme is so well played out and developed in addition to the action, which we all know is going to be awesome for a majority of these writers, particularly all Vince Flynn and Kyle Mills books. 
but I think sticking to that theme and exploring it fully is what's really going to differentiate a few. And, and I don't know if term limits gets there for me on issues of good and evil or issues of is violence ever justified? I think it dances with them. I just don't right. know if, if it nails the landing. Yeah. And I thought one of the other big points is this idea of consequences and how every action has consequences. I mean, that's like literally what sets off this entire set of action. You know, someone in uh, the government who has loose lips and they don't think about what they say, the difference between life or death. And so I, I thought that was a big thing that every action has consequences and that you need to think about them. That that actually might, to me, stand out. That's a great suggestion as a stronger theme than some of the other ones we've discussed. I'm thinking about the amount of times law enforcement and or the Secret Service was ignored or downplayed in their expertise and the consequences that had on the administration and the White House. And then in that same vein, I'm thinking of the consequences, even long term, a Senator Fitzgerald, Congressman Koslowski, they're not going to get away with their actions and living lavishly and passing sham budgets and running up the debt. It will catch up to them eventually. And so I think, right. I think that's, a, that, that's a great theme. And then the last thing I just wanted to point out is this, the idea of hubris. And I think a lot of the characters sort of have hubris and it, it is their downfall. Specifically, you know, a lot of times the president seems to have a lot of hubris and, and that tends to have a problem in, in his administration as well as uh, Arthur Higgins. It, it probably is what leads him to be, you know, captured and, and die. So that was like sort of a small little theme I wanted to bring up. I think Nance too. Right. right. Being actually well-trained, but he's a spook. He, yeah. And he, and it's like Garrett is willing to put it in your face and tell you he's better than you and tell you what the business is. But Nance was secretly thinking that and planning right. it the whole time in the shadows, in the background. Yeah. And it, you know, he got what was coming, falling off that horse, right? Cracking his neck. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just had a series of questions. I wanted to, a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. Who, who did you think was the most noble character in, out of this list? Whether it be Michael O'Rourke, Scott Coleman, Skip McMahon, or Eric Olson? Mm. That's a good one. I want to jump and say O'Rourke. He became a very likable character for his morals and value judgments. But I think Skip. I think yeah, I'm going I'd have to go with Skip. Something about the way he handled his job, his responsibilities. It wasn't as in your face as O'Rourke, but he was willing to stand up to others. And he also, I liked his relationship with his boss, Director Roach. He points out that Director Roach was younger than him, I think, joining the Academy and getting into the FBI. But it was okay that Roach had this career ambition to move up the bureaucratic ladder and become director. And I liked how Skip kind of just stuck to his guns and said, it's not me. I'm an agent. Keep me in the field. Not taking a desk job. But you know what? I'll work for you. You're younger than me. I had more experience, but you could be my boss. We'll work together. It's, it's symbiotic. And I think that was noble in itself just to humble himself and say, this is my role. This is where I see myself and still be able to work well with his boss, director Roach. Right. So sort of the opposite of that, who, who do you think is the most evil character in, in the story? Is it, is it Garrett, Nance, Higgins, or president Stevens? Uh, Garrett, right? Like Garrett's the low hanging fruit. Garrett <laughs> yeah. just stands out, but I, I want to look at, I want to look at it from a different angle. So what do you say? I don't know. Secretly, I want to say Stevens because he's just like a dumbass. But I guess, you know, 
he could just be aloof and not really know his choice. But I guess Nance, because Nance was like so calculating behind the, behind the scene, and he threatened to kill Stu. Like, where, I don't know, Stu didn't have it to kill anybody. He w- he was all talk, no game. That's true. And Arthur's pretty bad too, but yeah. I, w- I was gonna say Arthur because just think about the power he has to run these operations. And we later in the Mitrap series are going to appreciate directors and managers in the CIA who are willing to run those operations. But it seems like Arthur just went down a bad path with that secret power behind the scenes where we later are going to see CIA directors and managers who wield that power and always keep the public good in mind. Do you think this book does a good job uh, accurately portraying uh, politics in D.C.? I think after speaking with Andrew in our bonus episode, who worked closely on Capitol Hill with the majority whip, I, I think so. I do. Hearing about the press conferences and the role of the media and some of them negotiating and how these things go on, I, I think a relatively well, well done job exploring that. There are parts of it, of course, that I, are so far-fetched, like any, any novel right. that I can't see, but that's even going to be something that comes up in our next bonus episode when we explore the theme of term limits and how was the actual constitutional history? Was it represented accurately? Could have been portrayed in a different way that is more important to what the boots on the ground try to influence legislation around term limits. So I feel like it was realistic, but there were some parts that obviously missed the mark. You're asking a lot of questions. I'm curious, how do you feel it was portrayed about the use of violence and uh, revolution and, and the rights of the people? Well, I think revolution doesn't necessarily have to be violent, right? Uh, a revolution could be just getting people out to vote and getting people to put the people you want into into power that actually you think you believe in their in their stance and you believe that they're going to accurately represent you, right? You know, that could be a revolution in terms of changing, you know, a seat, flipping it to your cause, whatever. You know, you can also, I, I believe in protesting. I believe in, you know, the right of free speech, all that stuff. So I don't necessarily agree with like the anarchy aspect of it. And like you said, I, I don't think that um, the assassins just sort of scratch the surface of it. Makes for a good thriller novel, but. You could also understand Coleman, we learned, being motivated by losing men due to a leak by one of these fat cats in Washington, you know, so I could totally understand the personal motivation for it. But as a wider political philosophy for change, I, I don't think it has any place. And I think we jump to uh, the characters jump to conclusions right. with that. But I can understand the personal motivations behind them. Right. And so now we like to go into a section that we call the zero sum game, where we're going to talk about our winners and losers, what we liked best, what we didn't like, and just wrap this, uh, this, this book up. So what was what did you like best, Mike? The helicopter sequence. It keeps coming back to me. If I think about the book, that's that's the one scene I think about. I, I enjoy making this map I was telling you about last episode. I hope some people found it online. We'll put the link uh, up again in the show notes. But I just thought that was masterfully well done. What about you? I liked all the portrayals of the, um, the FBI would do in these sort of situations, like the investigation aspect of it, as well as, you know, sort of getting a closer look at what the secret service would do in certain situations. So I liked 
all the research that went into it, all the military explanations of different scenes. You could, you could tell that this, this book was, and most of, most of his books are, all of his books are very well researched. So that, that's what I like the best. And I think for our critiques on the zero sum game, there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers. We've already talked about a few of them, you know, such as overdeveloping too many characters and their backstories using a similar device that you rely on almost too heavily. So here's, here's a new loser for you, which I think you'll agree, but, but let's see. We were doing some digging and we found thanks to a couple of great writers, the real book spy is one of them reading a couple of his old posts and it turns out term limits was not the original name for this book. Yeah, no, but, it wasn't. But thankfully before it got published and once again, Vince Flynn found his own, you know, self-publishing company to get this off the ground before, before he went that far, to me, it was a great change. So a loser would have been the original title. You ready for it? The right to stand up. Bad title. Would, would that have been a winner or a loser for you? That would have been a total loser. Not, not a good book title. Do you, I like term limit so much better. I hate to say it, but do you think going with that title for your first novel, even though the text was great, we enjoyed it. Do you think that would have affected his, his future career? Do you think that a publisher, like he gets picked up by pocketbooks, would for a two-part series after this comes out do you think they would have picked up on it i mean they probably, they probably pick it up and then they force them to change the title <laughs> that's what i'm wondering though is what would have gotten that far they definitely would have would have gone over changing the title you know what else got changed actually over time i was looking at the different cover artwork because i read the kindle version and I had an old Kindle version and I didn't realize there were two different ones. And so I got two different titles, uh, two different covers, excuse me, which, which caused me to dig in. So for, for winners and losers, we've got five book covers that we found were the most common publications. What worked for you, Chris, which, which one comes out on top? I really like the guy running, you know, you can kind of imagine this scene, like whenever you're reading a, a part in the book, the ones with the crosshairs, like, I don't know. They don't, they don't age well. I don't know. I mean, just to, to describe, we also have these gray monotones. So it looks like these great monolith stone structures and a, a waxed uh, marble floor. And this character is running in a black suit. So I'm like, is this Secret Service? Is this supposed to be Michael O'Rourke? I guess it's Michael O'Rourke running through what would be the Lincoln Memorial. Is that the Washington Monument in the background? But there's never a scene where that happens. So maybe I don't like this one. Yeah, I see the reflecting pool. And he's running through the Lincoln Memorial. I'm like, who's running? Where are they going? When was this in the story? No action took place really near the Lincoln. I, no. I was just thrown off. I guess there were a series of covers similar to this, but I just don't know if that's going to work as a theme for, for these covers. And then I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. The two original versions, the 1997 Cloak and Dagger Press and the 1997-98 Pocket Books edition, I'm digging the crosshairs on the uh, Capitol, on the dome, in your face. I'm like, this is going to have some action. I, I can get into this. Now, crosshairs on the Capitol building, knowing the last 20 or so years of history, particularly a pre 9-11 publication, you know, by a number right. of years. Right. I, I understand where you're coming from with not aging well, but come on, man, how much stuff happens in these books that is just completely insensitive and off the chain. And we can handle a little, little crosshairs on the Capitol building. I mean, it definitely is like you walking through a bookstore and you see that you're like, I'm gonna pick Whoa. that up versus like just seeing, you know, the flag waving in the Capitol building and something that says term limits. I might think it's actually like a book on the history of term limits 
instead of like an actual thriller, you know? So yeah, I'm still thinking, why is this guy running? <laughs> <Where's he going? laughs> and why is he running through the Lincoln Memorial? So yeah, you know, I don't like that one. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with your choice too. Well, you know, the other two options that came up and I'm, I'm going to say the 2005 one's nice. It seems to me this was part of an attempt to mainstream the covers a little bit and kind of align them with future publications and kind of go back and make them all similar. We get basically the red and white stripes of the flag horizontally going across the cover of the book. We get the Capitol building in the middle. And I feel like that red theme works. It's kind of making me think of some of the books that came out with similar covers and it creates this link between this first book, which doesn't even have Mitch Rapp and later books in the series, at least trying to get some continuity or, or some visual recognition by later readers to go back and maybe look at this one and say, Oh, that's familiar to the series that I'm, I'm comfortable reading. Right. All right. So Mike, what is your overall ranking of this book? You can give me a letter score, Goodread score, you know, one out of 10, all three, whatever. I mean, first on Goodreads, you know, if I, if I like the book and I support the author, it's always five out of five, you know, to me, it's not too hard to get five out of five on Goodreads. That just shows I want to show the public this is worth your time and appreciate the author's craft. But if I were to do a deeper analysis on a, on a rating scale, I'd have to sit around a B. I think I can go up to a B plus definitely on certain areas. So I'm sitting on that fence from a B, B plus. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, pretty much the same I, i'd go b or you know out of 10 i'd, I'd say seven and like you said on goodreads you know probably 4.5 range for me so something that is worthy i feel like people should pick it up and read it so yeah well how about this if you were to project out as we reread the books throughout this series i hope to keep a running tally of where this falls it's not a mitch rap series right so this one's kind of the oddball out but are you talking, will it crack your top five? You know, remember there's 19 books. We're about to get number 20 in this September. Is it, is it cracking the top five? Is it bottom five? For me, it's, it's gotta be somewhere floating in the middle. Floating dead center in the middle, maybe the, maybe the lower end, just cause I know how great later ones are gonna be. But yeah, it's, it's definitely not in the top five. And hopefully we'll be able to do, once we get some of these under our belts, we can do like a, part of a podcast where we do our rankings our favorites but yeah it's definitely sort of in the middle i would agree with that yep yep. middle lower middle so well those are our thoughts on the book so reach out on twitter let us know what you think with the handle at mitch rap pod you can also find us at mitchrappod.com and please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform next time we're going to be covering uh, a special constitutional deep dive so make sure you check out for that and as always just let mitch be mitch guys we're just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters this podcast is not officially affiliated with vince flynn kyle mills or simon and schuster But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.